All right, so our reader got sick at the last minute, so you're stuck with me. I'm going to read uh, the word today. So our reading today is from Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 29. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall because of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So good morning, Redemption Arcadia. How you doing? All right. Good. A um, little different this morning, a little stark, other than Camille being up here. Uh, a couple reasons for that. One is we are transitioning our stage to Christmas time. We have a different looking stage for Christmas every year. And the second reason is because uh, Cody Kimmel, who uh, most often leads us, is actually preaching down in Florence prison uh, today. He's preaching in the North Unit. And so uh, be praying for him as he does that. We're glad for that. Um, uh, just, just a little comment about this service. Didn't have this comment about the first service. Not that I'm trying to pit you guys against each other, but I was standing out in the lobby area uh, listening to Rock of Ages and listening to you guys sing it. And I got to tell you something, it was magnificent. It was absolutely beautiful. So just, just to tell you, it, it pointed me to Jesus for sure, but it was absolutely beautiful. Uh, something else I want to do before I get into this final sermon that we have on the Sermon on the Mount is I want to talk about the election again. Uh, this wake of the election is now uh, 12 days long, but it is still churning. Have you noticed? Okay. Um, and and it's, just been, uh, it's just been interesting. I, I, I've really been overwhelmed by the number of people who still want to talk about this election from the standpoint of what do we do? How do we respond? What's going on? And I'm talking about from both sides of this aisle here. Um, and, and initially, I would say this uh, to those who are uh, still giddy over the uh, results of the election and to those who are depressed and discouraged because of the results of the election, I really have the same message for both of you. Uh, you need gospel humility and introspection on both sides of this aisle. In your giddiness and in your depression, really, you need to just keep seeking Jesus because he is on his throne, and it is the only throne that there is. Uh, I read a really helpful essay uh, the day after the election written by a guy named Russell Moore. It's the only thing I posted on any sort of social media. I posted it and then turned, down, turned off all social media uh, since then. Um, and uh, in, the, in his essay, he makes the case, and I happen to agree with him, uh, not just about America in general, but specifically about Christian America, uh, evangelicals, supposed evangelicals, uh, we have a false god in this country. And that false god is politics and politicians. And it is clearly evident in the wake of this election, the giddiness and the depression not by people outside of the gospel, but by people who claim to have faith in Christ. And, and uh, again, I, I think that I have only one place to point 
us to in the midst of this and in the wake of this. Um, Let me read to you uh, some words from Hebrews chapter 12, and hopefully it will be instructional but also comforting as well. The author writes, under the guidance and influence and power of the Holy Spirit, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. And you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us be grateful that there is one kingdom in this universe, in reality, that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. I I hope those are helpful words. Uh, As people come and they say, uh, I need direction, I need guidance, I need hope, I need need to know where you stand on this. I stand on the rock, which is what we're going to look at today. And I'm going to point you to the rock. And, and I got to tell you, that's all I got. <laughs> if you're looking for something else, I'm sorry, that's all I got. I don't have an array of solutions. I have one. Uh, but I understand in our world, we're, hey, man, we're Americans. We solve problems. I get that, okay? But our problem is sin. Tom talked about this last week. Our problem is sin. Our problem isn't economic. It's not educational. It's not governmental. Our problem is sin. And there's only one answer to that problem, and it's Jesus Christ. And so we're going to keep pointing people to Jesus because that's what we need. And really, that's what we want, whether we realize it or not. Now, the next thing that's coming right now, and I'm starting to get this, is, well, what about the holidays? Well, I'll tell you, there's some good news and and bad news that the holidays are coming. In four days, we've got Thanksgiving. And then, of course, just the whole blur of the holiday rush, okay? So uh, I know that one of two things will happen. Number one... um, the, the, the rush of the holidays, the excitement of the holidays, the turkey of the holidays, all of those things. Okay, I'm sorry, Arcadia, the kale of the holidays, all of those things. <laughs> hopefully, will let us get past the election. Praise Jesus if that happens. But also, I'm getting people saying, I, I, I got to go to holidays with people who don't agree with me politically, and it hasn't been nice. It's been really hard. I don't know if I can go. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. Again, I think we have two options. Here are the options. Number one, one option is to, well, just go ahead and disparage them on social media, okay? It seems like that's been one of the um, more popular choices lately. Uh, Here's the second option. Remember that you are filled with the Holy Spirit and that God calls us that as far as it depends on us, as far as it depends on us, we are to live at peace with other people. And because we are filled with the Holy Spirit, We can also manifest the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And even in the midst of very challenging times, family DNA 
and politics. You can rest on the rock of Jesus, be filled with his spirit, and manifest his fruit. And I think that's where we need to go. And that's exactly what Jesus did, if you think about it. In the midst of the storms around him, that was what he manifested, was the fruit of the spirit. So as we pray before this message, I'm, I'm going to pray to that end, because I know, I, I will tell you just very honestly, I'm looking forward to Thanksgiving. Darby and Joey are coming home, and it's going to be pretty tight. And, and, and we eat turkey. We don't talk politics at Thanksgiving, okay? So it's going to be great, all right? Maybe even put up a Christmas light or two. But I know that this is hard for a lot of people. And I'm not trying to minimize it. I'm just saying, here's the hope. Here's where you can look. So let's pray. Lord God, I do pray for that. And, and I just, I, I pray our thanksgiving for the fact that we do have hope. That inheritance that's been given to us, we are adopted as your children. We can grab onto that. We can be filled with your spirit. We can look to your resurrected son. And, and we can read your word for guidance and wisdom and truth. And so, God, I pray for that now as we wrap up the Sermon on the Mount. Pray that our hearts and our minds will be open to this. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, just so that you know, uh, the tough stuff isn't over. This is going to be a really We're going to get down and dirty in this uh, message today. We're wrapping up the Sermon on on the Mount. And oh, by the way, if you're wondering if the Bible has anything to say about politics, what have we been talking about for the last 16 weeks? We've been talking about the fact that there is a kingdom politic, and Jesus expresses that and teaches that to us in the Sermon on the Mount. And there's a world politic, and the two are very different. But one of the things that we need to remember is that the two also overlap at times. There is some overlap there. Uh, they don't completely eclipse each other. That will not happen until the new Jerusalem comes. But there is some overlap. We need to remember that, that Jesus says, you are to be in the world but not of the world. So we, we have to navigate our way through that world politic, but we are the ones bringing a new politic, a new creation, a new covenant politic into that world politic. It's the kingdom politic. And Jesus teaches that in the Sermon on the Mount. It's also a pathway to discipleship. If you want to know what a true disciple of Jesus looks like, just read and study the Sermon on the Mount, and you'll get a very comprehensive picture in the midst of that. And then the other thing the Sermon on the Mount does for us, I believe, without explicitly saying so, implicitly, it constantly points us to the Holy Spirit. Because you read the Sermon on the Mount, and you have to say, how in the world can I do that? How could I possibly do what he's calling me to do? And the answer is that it's by his power and his grace. And then our submission to that would be our humility and our honest introspection. So, so the spirit is pointed to in the Sermon on the Mount as where we get the power to be able to live this. We are filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus says in, in John chapter 16, he says, don't despair that I'm leaving because it's going to be better for you. I'm sending you the Holy Spirit. And we are filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and our humility and honest introspection is very important. We heard that last week when Tom was preaching here last week. We had that verse that said, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, is going to gain entrance into the kingdom because you have not 
really done what I've told you because you do not really have true, truly new hearts, I, I'm going to stand at the gate and I'm going to say, I did not know you. That calls for you and I to truly have introspection into our lives. Do we really believe this stuff? And Jesus continues with that again today as he wraps up. He gives us yet another metaphor for whether or not we really understand the gospel and whether or not we understand what is required of us. He talks about the sand and the rock. There's a, a song out there, um, and I, some of you maybe have heard this song. I'm not going to sing it for you. Can I get an amen for that? Um, I, I'm going to read you the lyrics, though. I think it's perfect for today's sermon. It's by a guy named Alan Levi, and it's called The Land Where People Walk Backward. So just listen to these lyrics. Um, by the way, it sounds a little Dr. Seussy. Okay, so if you feel a little Dr. Seuss jive in there, yeah, I, I felt it too, all right? So here it is. They walk around backwards everywhere they go. They are bumped, they are bruised, they are scarred and broken. And why they walk around backwards, they don't know. They stumble and they stagger into one another. They trip and they tumble and they all fall down. There's a dangerous cliff that they cannot see and a lake at the bottom where the people drown. It seems that they've always walked around backwards. They were backwards born, they are backwards grown. The little children learn it from their mamas and their papas. And they're reluctant to leave what they've always known. Some did worse and some did better. They all got by in their backward town. They all feared the cliff and the lake below, but the people would fall and the children would drown. Then a stranger came to town and to them he walked backwards. Strangest sight you'd ever see, but he had no bumps, no scars, no bruises. And he says, this is how you were meant to be. If you'll just follow me, if you'll just turn around, you will see where you're going. You will not fall down. And you'll have no fear of the cliff and the lake, and you'll not tumble in, and you will not drown. But the people got afraid, and the people got angry. When he said, come follow, everyone refused. They all got together and they ran off the stranger and they still get broken and scarred and bruised. But some, I am told, heard the things he said. There are now forward footprints in the town and they stand at the cliff with the words of the stranger. You'll do fine if you'll just turn around. There still is a land where the people walk backwards. Here's our big idea today, very simple. Jesus says, walk with me. Jesus says, walk with me. Let me reread that first paragraph about this metaphor. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came. And the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell. And great was the fall of it. So he starts by saying, here's the wise person. Okay? So wisdom. He's talking about wisdom. And that's something we all want, right? We say we want it. The problem, though, is, is that we don't want it Jesus' way. That's just the truth. Wisdom, according to Jesus, says, here it is, we submit to him. There's nothing else. There's no Article 7, Section 2, Paragraph 3. 
There's, as Paul, as uh, Paul, <laughs> as Tom, ah, pretty close, as Tom said last week, there is no negotiation to this. Jesus says, submit to me. We say, well, I like this part of Jesus, and I like that part of Jesus, but this part over here, I'm going to keep to myself. Jesus says, no, that's a, that's a sandy foundation. You're going to run into some problems if you do that. Jesus says, submit to me. But we push against that. We want a wisdom we define and we control. We want it on our terms. Jesus says, walk with me. That's what he says. So Paul, in Ephesians chapter 5, and I know some of you are like, are you going to quote Ephesians 5 every single Sunday? And the answer is yes, until I think we've got it. Because we keep pushing against it. Paul says, here's the wise person, here's the foolish person. The wise person submits their will to God. The foolish person submits their will to him or herself. And then engages in worldly intoxications that self-medicate and that we worship and serve ourselves. So we're intoxicated by the world. We're not submitted to Jesus. And then here's the, here's the real killer. We also are trying to get everyone else to submit to our will in addition to that. That's a problem. That is a challenge. Dr. Henry Cloud describes it this way in his research and his observations. He says, from what I can gather, and he says, and based on this definition of who a wise person is, a wise person is the one who adapts their life completely to God, what God calls us to. Uh, Jesus died for our sins, was raised to give us new life. We enter into that new life, and we do his words. The wise person, that's the wise person. He says about 5% of people actually do that. A lot of people say it. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord. A lot of people say it. Not everyone does it, about 5%. He then says about 94% of the people are what we would call foolish. And he just defines the foolish people this way. He says they want everyone else to adapt to them. Now, some of you, like me, are graduates of Grand Canyon University, and you've done the math, and you realize that we're only at 99% right now. There's still 1% left. And Dr. Cloud actually defines them for us, too. He says they're really part of the, of the 94%. They're the foolish people. But the foolish, they're the foolish people who are so determined and so intent and so focused on getting everyone else to adapt to them and to submit to them that they are what we might call pathological. And they are the people, they are the reason why you must hire a lawyer. So this is why we have lawyers, because of foolish people. <laughs> okay. So there's your 5 and 95%. And let, let me bring that. Okay, so I was in the marketplace for 20 years. I worked for a major, major billion-dollar corporation for seven. I led uh, a company for 10 years. I, I, did, I was in the restaurant business. I, I was in the marketplace. I get the marketplace. Uh, now, I, most of my meetings are w with marketplace Christians trying to figure out how to... Uh, how to practice the gospel in the marketplace, not just on Sunday morning where it's easy, okay? What is the biggest challenge that we have in the marketplace? Uh, we might think that the biggest challenge that we have is competition for our product, our goods, and our services. Now, certainly that's a problem, but it's not your biggest problem. I guarantee you that when you have a problem with your product, your good, or your service, you deal with it, and it's usually a pretty easy fix. You can figure that out. What we spend, at least I did, what we spend 
most of our time on in the marketplace is this whole issue of who's going to submit to who, who's going to adapt to who. This is why we have human resources departments in order to deal with the legalities and the trouble that this causes. This is where most of our angst and our emotions and our energy and our time go into is people problems because we're all trying to figure out how to get everyone else to adapt to and submit to us. Isn't that right? So this is a problem that affects us everywhere we go. And the rock and the sand relate to this. 95% are the sand. They think that they are building their lives and their homes on the firm foundation, but they, they aren't. And, and Jesus' illustration really reflects, it's brilliant, because it reflects a common first century problem in Galilee. Now remember the Sermon on the Mount is spoken on the, on the sloping mountain where down below is the Sea of Galilee. So everybody has the Sea of Galilee in their minds as he's giving this sermon. And he ends with a, an illustration that directly relates to the land around the Sea of Galilee. There's sand around the Sea of Galilee. And during the summer that sand becomes really hard packed. And to somebody who doesn't know any better, they go there in the summer and they look at that sand and it looks like rock. It looks solid and sturdy and it looks foundational. And so they will build houses or buildings in the first century on that sand. The problem is, is that the true foundational rock is down a couple feet from the sand. They don't realize that. And so in, in the fall or the autumn... Or the winter, when that first tough storm comes, their building, their house gets washed away. So this is vivid imagery that Jesus is giving us. He's saying, listen, if you build your house, your life, on things other than who I am, other than the gospel, you're, you, other than the grace of God, you're building it on sand. That's the problem. And he would even say to you, in the midst of this, because in the back of his mind, in that time, are the professional religious people. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, and the lawyers. He would say, and with all of their religious lists and requirements, he would say to you, that is sand. They present it as a rock, but that is even sand. He says, no, the true rock is the grace of God, the good news of the gospel. That's what you need to build your life on. And it's interesting because... Um, uh, Luke's account of this section of the Sermon on the Mount actually points this out very specifically in how he describes it. Listen to what Luke records. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep. Very specific. And laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose and the stream broke against that house and could, and could not shake it because it had been well built. See, the sand's appearance is good, but it's really deceptive. And when the storms come, no more, no more house. You know, the counterfeits always look good on the surface. They, do, that, 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 they have to look good on the surface in order to fool us. They have to look good. They have to feel good. They have to sound good. And there's hope there. The, the counterfeit hopes that there is no scrutiny. Okay? I've told this story before. I'll tell it again because I think it's a pretty decent illustration. Um, I, I have a friend, uh, years ago, this is like 12, 13 years ago. His wife was graduating with a master's degree. 
And my friend, he, he's like a just-in-time kind of a guy. He, he does things at the last minute. And suddenly he realizes, I think we better have a party for her. So he's putting together, he's throwing together this party. And on the day of the party, he says, I think we need a cake. So he runs over to Costco. He runs into the bakery department in, in, in Costco. And he's, and he's frantically looking around. He doesn't ever speak to a baker or an employee in there. But he sees a display cake, and there are other display cakes, but he sees one that has the perfect colors trimmed out and the icing of the cake for this graduation party. So he just grabs it and runs up to the front. They have some trouble ringing it up. They don't have a, they don't have a number for the register. They, they don't know how much it is. They finally kind of figured it out because he was pressing to get out of there. $29.99, get out of here. And he runs home. He's got some icing in the little tube at home where he's going to put, he's going to personalize it. Congratulations, Mary, you know. And then he and his father-in-law put it into the refrigerator. A couple hours later, they decide to, to pull the cake out and cut the cake. The father-in-law is there. And he starts to cut the cake, and it gets through the icing and then stops, just stops dead. He can't even move the knife. So he's a little confused, so he goes and gets a better knife. He gets one with a serrated edge. The serrated edge doesn't help. So now they're theorizing that the, uh, the refrigerator somehow froze the cake part, and they got a problem, okay? So they, they keep finding, trying to find other knives. They get a butcher knife. They get everything, okay? Finally, they don't care anymore. They don't care what they do to the cake. I, true story, okay, true story. His father-in-law goes into the garage and gets a saw. And he brings a saw, and they start sawing on the cake, and what they found out was that the cake was actually styrofoam. It was a display cake, and it was so good that it fooled my buddy. This is what we're doing when we're building our lives on the sand. Jesus is trying to point this out. Also, when you go to Costco, would you please just talk to a baker? It would be really helpful. But this is what we're doing. And the grace of God is the rock. The grace of God is the rock. So how about, I, I talked about how in Jesus' day you had some sand. What, what are the sands today? Okay, part of my job as your pastor is to, is to read and to figure out what the sands are today. And so I've compiled a list for you. Going to get a little tough here for some of you. Let's, let's work through this, though. I've got five things. This is not a comprehensive list. It's not all of the sands that we have, but there are five that I, I think are fairly prominent in our world today. Here's the first one. It's something called meism. Meism. M-E-I-S-M. Here's the definition of meism. I come first. I take care of me first. I need to make sure that I am complete and whole first before I do anything else. I need to make sure that I know how to love myself totally and completely before I can love anyone else. It's all about me. And once I get me figured out and me fixed and me perfect, then maybe I'll have enough time for the rest of you. That's what meism is. In 2014, a woman named Jean Twinge, who is a PhD in psychology and she's on the academic staff at San Diego State University, she published this book, very interesting read. It's titled Generation Me. Why Today's Young Americans Are More Confident, Assertive, and Entitled, and More Miserable Than Ever Before. This idea of focusing on me sounds good. It sounds right. Me. It's making us miserable. It is making us miserable. There's a Harvard psychologist who also wrote uh, an essay in 2014 in the New York Times who said the same thing. 
He said, people who really are happy and filled with joy are people who actually serve others. But then he said this, listen to this. He said, but if you're looking for happiness through this as a methodology, it won't work. Because if your goal is happiness, you won't be happy. You have to be a person of altruism because that's who you are. That's your character. And I'll tell you again, just to mention, this is the last time I promise I'm going to mention the election until 2020, okay? Um, this election has kind of brought that home for me too. We've talked for years now about the trouble of special interest groups in election, right? In elections. Everybody on both sides is worried about special interest groups. Here's what I've discovered this year. This year, in America, we had essentially 330 special interest groups. Every group had one person, and every group's mantra was this, what about me? And this is where we are. This is where we are. Here's the second sand. Follow your heart. Follow your feelings. Just follow your heart and everything will be fine. Just, just do what you feel is right and everything will be fine. Don't, and the implicit message in that is don't worry about any truth. Miroslav Wolf, great scholar, he says, we now live in a post-truth world. Think about that. We live in a post-truth world, and he says, that means that feelings rule our society. Now, I've asked this question before in this congregation, and again, I'm going to ask it. When, when our hearts and our feelings start colliding, whose heart wins? Whose feelings win? What happens when hearts and feelings begin colliding, especially absent any absolute truth? You know what happens? Conflict, disparagement, wars. This is what happens. I seriously question if anybody in the last 15 or 20 years has taught anyone about coping skills. What do you do when you're disappointed? What do you do when you don't get your way? Well, you just destroy everyone else. That's essentially what we begin to do. That doesn't work. Uh, Jackie and I have been married for 29 years. Uh, she is a master in coping skills, believe me. <laughs> And, and if you want a good example of coping skills, just look to her. Marriage is a frightening reality for people who have absolutely no coping skills. You either figure it out or you destroy each other. That's a tough thing. And that happens in the marketplace as well. Whose hearts and feelings win when they collide? Uh, it's interesting. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, consider everyone else better than you. Look not only to your own interest, but also to the interests of others. Here's what Paul is saying. You have your interests. That's fine. You have your heart. You have your feelings. That's fine. But you need to understand that your heart and your feelings are going to collide with somebody else's heart and feelings, their interests. And so when you're thinking about your interests, you need to be thinking about other people's interests as well. And we need to figure out how to work together. By the way, the gospel helps us figure that out. Jesus is our head, and we are one body with many members, and we're diverse, but we're, we're united in Christ. That is the gospel. We need to remember Jeremiah's words in chapter 17. The heart, my heart, is wicked and deceptive above all things. Who can understand it? I've been deceived in my life by a lot of people, but I have never been deceived by anyone more than my own heart. My own heart. So here's the third thing. 
the mantra that people are basically good. People are basically good. Um, and, and I'm not talking about people outside of a theology of the Bible. I'm talking about people who claim to be evangelical Christians, who say that they read this word and believe this word. Inside the church, more than half of the people, according to Barna's research, more than half of the people inside the church believe the lie that people are basically good. When everything in this book says, no, our problem is sin, and we've been corrupted by that, and if we were basically good, Jesus didn't have to go to the cross and didn't have to be raised from the dead, we would have no need for the gospel. The good news of Jesus is because the bad news is that we're not basically good. And, and, and I'm, I'm still on this. Every time somebody says that, I say, really? Look around the world and then say that again with a straight face. How do you quantify that? I don't understand that. It just sounds so good, though. And it's sort of a discussion ender I've, I've found. Now, let me, let me just dive a little bit deeper into this. Um, I would agree with this statement, though. People are basically moral. I believe that's true. But why are we basically moral? Here's why. We know that people aren't basically good, and so what we have to do is have standards and laws and rules and a way to live in society so that we don't have chaos and war. And so we agree uh, implicitly and sometimes explicitly that we're going to live under this structure of morality so that we can live with each other. So yes, people are basically moral, but the reason we have to be basically moral is because we are not basically good. Morality is about behavior. Goodness is about character. And without Jesus, we do not have good character. That's the good news and the bad news. But that's, that's one of the sands that we build our lives on. Here's another one. Here's another one. Science. Now, let me say this. <laughs> A little disclaimer here. I love science. I'm grateful for science. I'm glad for science in healthcare. I'm glad for science in education. I'm glad for science in all sorts of technology and communication. Here you go. I am not one of those people who's sitting around going, I wish I were living in the 60s again because, you know, I, I understand in my house in the 60s, we, I, I, was, CK, I was Louis C.K. essentially. We had one phone in the house it was on the wall in the kitchen, and you had to stand next to it to be able to use it. You couldn't use it in the phone or any, uh, in the car or anywhere else. And here's the thing about our phone. Until 1967, we, we were on a party line. So that meant nine other houses in our neighborhood were on our same line. I am so thankful for science. I am so thankful that I live today and not back then. I'm not pining for the good old days. Our daughters, both of our daughters, uh, Shelby graduated with a degree in biology. She's a scientist. Uh, Darby, has a she is pursuing a degree in kinesiology and anatomy. She is a scientist. But what is the great lie of science? The great lie of science is that it will eventually answer all of our questions, solve all of our problems, and eliminate all of our suffering. How are we doing with that? You know, a lot of the scientific inventions and progressions have actually brought in more misery than has solved suffering. You realize that, don't you? It's called the Frankenstein effect. Science is not 
something, it's great. And by the way, this helps illuminate the fact that these sands that we're building our lives on, they're not necessarily bad things. But when you exalt them to God-like stat, God -like status, that's where your problem comes in. Science is great, but it's not God. God invented it, by the way. He created it. Yet in the face of science, here's the last one. In the face of science, here's the last sand I want to talk about. It's constructed identity driven by cultural imperatives. Constructed identity driven by cultural imperatives. What's the biggest constructed identity that we deal with today in the public sphere? Sex and gender identity that anybody can construct on their own. And no one can question it. No one can, the fact that I have, I have had the bad taste to bring it up right here is making some of you very nervous right now because we're not allowed to question this. We're not allowed to analyze it. We're not allowed to say, yeah, but what if when it comes to constructed identity? I find it ironic that identity based on sex and gender is often dismissive of biology. Well, is biology true or not? Which is true, biology or culture? Now, biologists will tell you what well, biology is, yet biology is now required to bow to cultural mores. That's, that's the society we live in. In 1996, this is 20 years ago, in 1996, a guy named Terry Eagleton wrote this book. And by the way, I still carry it around in my backpack. The title of the book is The Illusions of Postmodernism, How the Postmodern Worldview Breaks Down Logically and Practically. Now, you hear that title, and I know some of you immediately think, well, he's a Christian right-wing conservative. <laughs> couldn't be, that couldn't be further from the truth. Couldn't be further from the truth, but he is a prophet. Here's what he writes. He says that sex and gender identity are the latest cultural fetishes exalted as true without serious analysis as to consequences. This is 20 years ago, y'all. And, and isn't it, he says, without serious analysis as to consequences. He would tell you that one of the, uh, one of the fallacies of postmodernism, one of its characteristics that cannot withstand analysis is the fact that they don't ever analyze things as to their consequences. Postmodernism lives in the moment. He writes, cultural construction is now valued more highly as terms of truth than biology and physiology. The current chic is to overvalue culture and undervalue biology. In another section of the book, he writes this. It is important for us to see, and postmodernism does not, that we are not cultural rather than natural creatures. Again, 1996, and he writes this. Imagine the chaos and confusion this will create in the decades to come. He is a prophet. By the way, and by, uh, what did God's people do to the prophets in the Old Testament? <laughs> Yeah, they killed him and threw him into wells, okay? And here's another irony. The very person, Paul McHugh, Dr. Paul McHugh, who pioneered transgender surgery in the 1960s at Johns Hopkins University, was also a part of the uh, group decision at that school for his university to stop doing the surgery when they found after the fact, several years after the surgery was done, that the people that the surgery was performed on were doing worse emotionally and psychologically than prior to the surgery. Isn't that ironic? But by the way, you want to check that out. 2014, he wrote an essay in the Wall Street Journal. Get out your smartphones right now if you want. 
He wrote that. And, and he's convicted by that. But also, I'm convicted personally by the fact that when talking about this, we still have to be really careful. We have to be really careful. We can't stand from afar and judge. I'm, I'm in the world of academia a lot. Paradise Valley Community College, Fuller Seminary. I'm around people who are struggling with these issues, deeply struggling with them. My sister is married to another woman and has been for a long time, even before they could do it because the Supreme Court said they could. I am face-to-face -face in relationship with people who are struggling with these issues, and those struggles are real. And if you hear their stories, they are heartbreaking stories. Nevertheless, when they start looking for a solution, they find the sand that looks so good. The solution is spiritual, and it's in Christ. And so while we reach out in compassion, and we walk across the aisle in compassion, we also have to be willing to speak the truth in love. To speak the truth in love. But they're all fake. The me-ism, the follow your heart, the do what you feel, the, the science, the, all of it is fake rocks. The sand that looks good yet washes away with any serious scrutiny. Here you go, another irony. In Isaiah 53, 700 years before he's born, Isaiah, the prophet, describes the Messiah. He describes Jesus. And he says this, He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Do you not see the irony in that? The solid rock actually doesn't look that great. But the solid rock will never deceive us. Never deceive us. Walk with him. And so Jesus wraps up this Sermon on the Mount with this rock and sand illustration because it's important. As Tom said last week, there's a real judgment coming. And, and not everybody who says, Lord, Lord. And there's a real judgment coming. And not everybody who's built their house has built it on the rock. And we need to be aware of that. And we need the introspection. We need the truth of who Jesus is. We need to build our life on the rock that is serious and real. And his urgency is palpable. Can, I, I know it's a text, but I can just hear him saying, you have to do this now. This isn't like, well, when I get around to it, I need to finish my career or school or romance or whatever that is. And when I have time and it's NFL season and all that stuff. And, you, you know, when I get around, no, he's saying, you got to do it now. This has to be a priority. Do his words. Because he's Jesus. He's everything that we need. And I know this is a bold statement by Jesus. I know it's bold. I mean, it was bold to the people who were there as well. He says, I'm the one. Forsake all others. Follow me. Walk with me. Do my words. Is he arrogant? No. He's not arrogant. He's God. And he has that authority. Look at those last two verses. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, literally amazed. Literally, they were bewildered as to its truth. Bewildered as to its truth. 
For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. See, the scribes and the priests and the rabbis of their time would cite other scribes, priests, rabbis. The professional religious people would cite other professional religious people. But Jesus' authority comes from who he is. He said earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, You have heard that it was said, but I say to you, God says to you. When I was in seminary, I loved so many of my professors, so smart, so accomplished. You'd go to class, you would look forward to going to class just to hear them talk. This is why so many people audit classes after they graduate because they don't have to write the papers or take the tests. They just get to go and li- for 25 bucks a semester, they get to go and just listen to the, to the professors. It's awesome. I had one professor named Nate Feldmuth. He was my church history professor. And he lived in Pasadena at the main campus, but he would fly over every quarter, five Saturdays every quarter. He would fly over and teach us on Saturday. And the class would start at 8 in the morning, and he'd go to 12, lecturing us. And then we'd have an hour off for lunch, and then he'd start up again at 1, and he would go to 5. Eight hours of church history. Lecture. And there's a guy that I was in that class with all year long named Cal. He's a pastor in the East Valley And at 5 o'clock, as Nate was starting to put his stuff together to leave, we would beg him to keep talking. He was awesome. But I'll tell you what, Jesus walks into that that classroom, Nate's going, I'm taking a seat, man. It's all you. He is the one that has real authority. He's God. And because of this authority, our salvation is in Jesus and Jesus alone. It's not our works, but his finished work. So I want to end our segment this 16 weeks on the Sermon on the Mount with an illustration that I'm hoping will encompass the the whole thing and and point us to the gospel and help us to really understand who Jesus is and what he's calling us to here. And understand, this is just an illustration. You can poke holes in it, but it might help some lights go on for some of us. So I teach communication at Paradise Valley Community College, been there 16 years. I teach at Fuller Seminary, been there 17 years. And in my communication class, I'm required to have a syllabus, okay? Some of you have taken, you know know the syllabus, right? Okay? The syllabus spells out in detail what a student must do in the class to be accepted. In other words, what the student must do to get a good grade and be given entrance into academic heaven and be be of some good here on earth as well. And if the student does not fulfill the syllabus, they go to academic hell. And they also have shame and guilt about failing a community college communication class. (laughs) The syllabus is sort of like our version of the Mosaic Law. And the school administration, they are the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the lawyers, and the scribes. And I'm the class rabbi. And the syllabus is my yoke. Remember Jesus says in 1128, uh, Matthew 1128, he says, says, uh, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, because my yoke is easy. His syllabus is easy, okay? And the syllabus reveals my wisdom as well as the college's wisdom for the student to get through the class, but I cannot do the syllabus. I can't do the syllabus for the students. I'm not allowed to. But imagine if we had a new paradigm at Paradise Valley Community College. Because I have already fulfilled the syllabus several times over, as my advanced degrees attest to, and in fact, I wrote the syllabus That makes me the picture of academic holiness. So now in order to pass my class, all you have to do is show up and walk with me. Follow me. 
That's all you got to do. You don't have to take the quizzes. I wrote the quizzes and fulfilled the quizzes already. You don't have to do any of the written assignments. I've already written the assignments. You don't have to take the midterm exam or, or give your informative or persuasive speech because I've already done all of that for you as well. By following me for 16 weeks, nothing else, you get an A in the class. You are made holy and sanctified in the realm of human communication theory. Hallelujah! Because I fulfilled it for you. Because of my finished work imputed to you. And when the school administration looks at you, they see me. That's crazy, right? Now, I know some of you are like, well, I'd take that class. <laughs> but that's crazy, right? That some of you are going, hey, you're, you're a little insane. Okay, I get that. No one at Paradise Valley Community College would ever accept this, especially not the school administration, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, the lawyers. Their game of profiteering and oppression through the law of the syllabus would now be over. Now, it's not that the syllabus doesn't matter anymore. I still teach the class. I disciple the students. I baptize them into this spirit of human communication theory. But I've done all the work. In fact, at the beginning of the class, the very first class, the very first day of the semester, I stand in front of the students and I say what? It is finished. It is finished. Think about it. That's how radical the gospel is. That's the gospel. Only on a much more important level. This is why people have such a hard time with the idea of Jesus and grace. Because it seems completely irrational. I have to do something for my salvation, right? I have to prove that I'm a good person, right? So my guess is that out of the people who do decide to take my class, there would be those who, like our gospel now, would try to pervert it or add to it. There would still be communication legalists and fundamentalists among the students who would explain to others, yeah, the grace of the professor is really cool, but I know I still have to take the test and give this speech even though it's not required anymore. And if you don't take the test and do the speech just like me, then you're not as pious as I am. There would also be those others who would presume upon the grace and the kindness of the rabbi and never show up for class and still expect to get the A. Yet others, however, rooted in the true communication gospel would say to those other students, just look to the teacher. And then out of joy and gratitude, those disciples of communication would go out, go throughout the rest of Paradise Valley Community College and tell people about the communication class and teach them all about human communication theory. Sounds a little bit like the Great, uh, Great Commission of Communication, right? When you take a class, what do you want? I ask this of my students very often on the first day of class. I, I say, well, what do you want out of this? I want to hear from each of you. What do you want out of this? And here are the answers I get. I want an A. Uh, I, want to just, I just want to pass because I need the credits and I need to transfer them to ASU or U of A or NAU or wherever. Uh, a lot of people say, well, this is a prerequisite. I have to take this class because, you know, it's part of my field of study. But I've never heard anybody say, because I want to be loved and known and understood and I want to learn and I want to know and draw closer to the topic. But isn't that really what the purpose of the class is? Don't you and I just want to hear, it is finished. That's what Jesus says to us on the cross. It's the last words he utters before he dies. It's done. And now you don't have to. That's the gospel. Let's pray together. Camille will come and lead us. Lord God, we thank you for your word and its truth, and we thank you for the gospel. We're so grateful.
for that. And during this very difficult time, I just pray that we would press more and more into you. And we'd be reminded that after this difficult time, there are going to be more difficult times that come. And that we just keep pressing into you. God, give us that, that hope. Give us that courage. Fill us with your spirit. And draw us unto you through your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray it in his name. Amen.